0: Hello out
1: there! Yes, hello everyone and happy holidays. Welcome back to the Number But The Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz and as always I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, how was Christmas?
2: Christmas was great. My, my wife cooked up a storm and I ate really well. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that about sums it up.
1: Well, unfortunately not many places to go this year on Christmas. Well, Can't no. see family, but hopefully next year.
2: Next year. Next year, yeah.
1: You did get a, a little present from Mr.
2: Springsteen. Yes, we did. On Thursday, he released the uh, November seventh, two thousand nine show from the Garden. The night he, the first night he performed, the first time he ever performed "The Wild the Innocent and Innocent" in the East Street Shuffle in its entirety. And uh, it was quite the quite the performance. Uh, I was I had to miss that one, but you were there.
1: Yeah, I sure was. And this night gets a little overlooked in history because of what happened the next night with the river. But this was one damn good show, and the performance of the record was was phenomenal. The last thirty minutes of Incident, Rosie Serenade was was about just perhaps the best thirty minutes of music I've ever seen.
2: I can definitely see that, and he had. He had the extra horns on stage, and he had the string section. I, there was just no way. He, I mean, I guess he has topped it, but uh, that really set the bar quite high.
1: Well, he may have topped it with other things. I don't believe there's been a performance of New York City Serenade in particular better than was performed on This Night November the seventh, two thousand and nine. When the strings kick in, it is just such a goosebump moment, and it was that night. The whole. Uh, by the time he got through the record, we knew we were seeing something special. Now, I think some people are going to argue, and and properly so, that the start of the show and and the post album portion wasn't quite as good as the next night, and that's and that's definitely the case. Of course, the river took up much more real estate in the show than the wild and the innocent did, but. This was was it it was it was a big time performance and and everyone came through all those guest musicians on stage.
2: Yeah, they they were prepared. They came out. They did a a tremendous job and you can hear it. You can really hear it in this recording. And I'm just blown away. Yeah. I mean, we've had this great I am recording from I guess it was from Crystal Cat for years. But, you know, even that really doesn't do the show justice like like this recording does.
1: Yeah, it's a great listen. And we should talk about that because Brad Serling had said on East Street Radio a couple of years back they wanted to release the show and they had a problem with the drives. Now we're fortunate because they obviously solved that problem, although they didn't seem to have solved it completely because they did use a two-track line feed from the board to patch Lonesome Day and The Rising.
2: Right. We We don't know exactly how much was missing when back in 2017 when, when Serling said that. so And maybe they were just very hesitant about putting, even patching just as little as those, what, four or five minutes of Lonesome Day in the Rising from an inferior recording. But I it, it worked well, and no complaints here.
1: Oh, totally no complaints. And they have done patches before. There was a smaller patch on the 93 Hungerthon benefit that was released. I know... There were several songs on one of the no-nuke shows were patched in from an alternate source. And also, uh, London 81 has at least part of a song that's patched from another source, right?
2: Yeah, and, and I guess we don't know how much they were missing when uh, when Brad Serling made his comments in 2017. Well, of course, at that time, they hadn't released many shows with, uh, with, with, with extensive patching. So, you know, maybe their their opinions or attitudes have changed.
1: It perhaps. And it's the right call. I mean, this is a show Absolutely. that needed to be out there it, it, because of the landmark nature of the Wild and the Innocent performance. And, and the other thing we should point out, and he was very good on this evening, of course, Clarence is part of the band still at this point, which differentiates it from the recording from Australia. It was Brisbane, right, where they did Wild and the Innocent in 2014? I, I believe so. Yeah. And they also did well, they did side B in Rome in twenty thirteen, but obviously that's post Clarence. So this is the one chance we have to get this entire record with Clarence on the stage. And as an added bonus, he was he was very, very
2: good that night. Yes, he was. He really brought something extra to Rosie and, and Katie's back and you know, he was on. He he brought his A game for the for the for the big for the big room
1: man that serenade i remember when those notes faded out at the end the and you hear it on the archive the the arena erupted everyone knew that they had just seen something so it it was it was really so special and and the emotion on Bruce's face that they had pulled it off. It was that it was a great night. And and again, you know, the next night was one of the best nights I've ever seen. I think a lot of people who were there share that. I wouldn't put this on the same level, but this again was a very, very special show.
2: Well, if you want to talk about an audience reaction, listen to the audience, the anticipation that rises up during the last few notes of incident. Oh. And then when he finally, you know, rams or crashes into the Rosalita guitar intro, you hear the crowd just go nuts.
1: Oh, I Man. was going out of my mind. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. You know, that was the first time I ever saw an incident in Rosy. And obviously we knew it was coming, maybe on another night where it might have happened you know, we wouldn't have known it was coming, but here we did know it was coming. And that created a buildup, and uh, not just for me, for the entire building that, as you noted, when when it crashed into Rosie, it was sort of a release, yes. and the building just went bonkers.
2: <laughs> well, that's that's what that is. That's the, the, tension, the tension of incident into the release of Rosie. That's That's one of the reasons his shows have always been so great, and albums, for that matter.
1: Now, one of the things that occurs is because that happened in the middle of the show, I know some people do knock the second half of the show. Uh, First of all, the performance of, say, Human Touch was was truly magnificent. And there was a lot of good stuff in there, the Elvis Costello appearance. But yes, the show peaked after Incident Rosie and New York City Serenade. I don't know how a show wouldn't peak after that.
2: Well, it just just makes the... uh the step off from from serenade to sunny day even more noticeable but yeah
1: well but i guess let's not go there
2: i guess the audience audience has the fun and you're right that performance of human touch is tremendous it's always been my favorite one or one of my favorites from the when the with the East Reband going back to as i said the crystal cat bootleg and so to hear everything as i said just every little instrument every little note every guitar noodle it's just wow It, it just it just blows me away
1: Yeah, a nice Christmas gift from Bruce, for sure, for all of the fans.
2: Yes, yes, sir.
1: Now, moving on to tonight's topic, as promised, we're talking about the 40th anniversary of the famed Nassau Coliseum stand that concluded with the wild New Year's Eve show. And to reminisce with us, we have a couple of guests tonight, and Flynn is going to introduce the first one.
2: All right, first up is a longtime friend of the podcast, or as longtime friend as as our podcast can have, uh, Stan Goldstein author of the or co-author of the rock and roll tour of the jersey shore book as well as actual tour guide for for said for said tour and uh, so welcome back to the podcast dan oh,
0: thank you flynn thank you hal thank you for having me on looking forward to talking about uh the nassau coliseum 40 <laughs> years ago
1: god uh, so lucky that you were at all these shows
0: yeah you were you attended all three right i did i did and uh I have no recollection, except for the New Year's Eve show. I remember getting those tickets. It was a mail. It was all mail order for these shows. And for those who don't know what mail order is, you just have to, like, there'd be an ad in the Sunday New York Times. You have to cut it out, mail it in with a money order. I don't even know if they let you choose which show, and you just had to wait and be patient and see if you either... Got tickets or you got your money order back saying, no, nope, no tickets for you.
2: So quite different than what we have now. To set the stage for the Nassau, show, Nassau Coliseum shows, Bruce had just played four shows at, at the Madison Square Garden in New York City on Thanksgiving weekend and then again in mid-December. So in a span of about five weeks, he was going to play seven shows, uh, basically within, what, a 20-mile radius, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so coming out of the garden shows and going into Nassau Coliseum, was there... Were they regarded as just another th- three shows, or was it, or did you guys already kind of know it was gonna be something special? Well, you knew it'd be special
0: because what number one, the garden tickets were like nearly impossible to get, those were all mail order too. And uh, he did two at the end of November, one on a Thanksgiving night, and then two, I believe it was the 17th and 18th of December. Mm-hmm. And the, I only went, to, I was lucky to get the tickets to Thanksgiving night. And so when you saw the three shows at the Nassau Coliseum, you were like, wow, this is going to be on, of course, a New Year's Eve show. So that was <laughs> like the hot ticket, like, all right, Bruce on New Year's Eve, that's where I want to be in law on Uniondale, Long Island, you know, <laughs> stuff. But no, it, was, it was quite special. And for me personally, I was at the time in my junior year at St. John's University in Queens. So this was, you know, right after finals, too. We were on Christmas break. And so it was a real relaxing time. So to be able to go to three shows with Bruce during that period was like the ultimate. Oh, sounds
1: like that was such an amazing week. And and speaking of which, there have long been stories that that week was brutally cold. What do you remember about that?
0: Yes, yes, I do remember that. It was it was freezing out. And um, I'll give you a little story after the uh, December 29th show. I was there with Billy Smith, who's a big Bruce fan, lives in Florida now. And um, Billy, after the show, knew some of the people on the road crew. And he was able to get a backstage pass, but he only got one. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I said to him, you go ahead. I'll go out in the car. And I remember sitting in the car, even with the engine running it, it was so cold. And after about 45 minutes, Billy comes back. Oh, it was great. I met Billy Joel backstage and, and had a lot of fun. But yeah, I. Re- it was a very cold week that time.
1: So set the stage, December 28th, 1980. There's been the four shows at the Garden, as Flynn mentioned. And now Bruce is taking the stage at the Coliseum and he opens with a tour debut, and I think the first time he'd played it ever,
0: right, uh, of Merry Christmas, Baby? Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually, before I came on with you, you two, I went back and did a little research, and uh, I, at the time, don't even think I was familiar with the song. I, I didn't know if it was a Bruce original at the time. Now, you know, doing research, I see it, was, it goes back to 1947. But that, that was a shocker, just to uh, hear that, and it, probably the first time I ever heard it, but that was pretty wild. And I mean, perfectly setting the tone really for the
1: stand, because it was still it was the week between Christmas and New Year's. They were going to end with this big blowout New Year's Eve show. And, and here he is on stage. And, and of course, he was already known at that point for doing Santa Claus, and here's another Santa song opening the stand.
0: Right? And the, the thing, uh, I don't know if many people remember, the first show, December 28th, Flo and Eddie came out and sang back, back up vocals on Hungry Heart. They were on the record, of course. And Flynn and Hal, you may know better than me. I don't know if they ever did it any
2: other time that they came out and did the back backup vocals on "Hungry Heart." There, I think they have. Don't quote me on that, but I think they have. But I can't. I couldn't tell you which which shows they they did it for. But that was the version that ended up on Live, Live seventy five yeah. eighty five, right? I, yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they took it. They took advantage of the guest spot, and of course, they had the multi truck, the multi track trucks out there recording it for all of posterity.
1: Now, Stan, coming off the Darkness Tour, of course, Bruce had already broken out, and then here on the River Tour, things were starting to ratchet up in a big way. He had his first hit single with Hungry Heart. He was now doing seven shows, as we mentioned, in the area. He had done the four shows at the Garden. What was the feel like in the crowd? Did people acknowledge that this guy was becoming a megastar in front of their eyes?
0: Well, for me, he was a megastar back then in 1977-78 but i i i think that really occurred with the craziness of getting tickets to the four madison square garden shows and i don't you two may be too young to remember this (laughs) there was there was a big scandal with the tickets at madison square garden that the scalpers bribed a lot of the people in the garden box office that's how hot of a ticket it was And the New York State Attorney General had to investigate it because, you know, as you were saying, how Bruce, yeah, was this huge superstar now, and these were really, really hot tickets. And for the Nassau Coliseum stand, too, it was just, uh, you know, it it, it was just a festive week, the festive three nights, as I said, between Christmas and New Year's. And, uh, yeah, Bruce Bruce was on top of the world, and uh, you felt it. Since you went back to
1: the mid-'70s, as a fan, how different did it feel to you being in the arena? There were obviously a lot of new fans, uh, as you just noted, the demand had gone way up. Did you sense a difference, in whether it was in the performance or how the crowd
0: felt? I just said it kept getting better and better. <laughs> it, it just, uh, he was improving. You know, to us, I, I grew up on the Jersey Shore, and I grew up in Neptune, which is the town next to Asbury Park, and to us, he was always our big superstar, but it, it really was to see, you know, uh, um, just the whole crowd being into him so much. It was like you, you just saw how he mastered the crowd, how he really was on top of the, his game. And I think you hear on the twelve twenty nine and the twelve thirty one archive release, it's just they're really firing on all cylinders at these shows. They were
2: they were a fine tuned machine. So he basically had the audience in the palm of his hands. Is that a oh, accurate yeah. statement? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, so
0: go on. Now, I was going to say, looking back, I see he it was the first time he ever played This Land is Your Land.
2: That's where I was going. (laughs) Okay.
0: And though he did it all three nights, and um, that was like, he he made a little bit of political statements too. And that was, um, I believe, the first time he really did something like that, or one of the first times. So it also, in addition to being, you know, Rock and roll, it was also like we were hearing a bit about Bruce,
2: you know, about social issues and things like that for the first time. And what was the what was the crowd's reaction to, to that to his this land is your land introductions mean when, when he was talking about this is your country, this is your time, you got to go out and you got to get it yourself, protect it for yourself. What kind of reaction did the audience have? Oh they were respect respectful
0: listening to him. There was no bruising or anything like that, which goes back. To, to, you know, the command of the crowd he had. And uh, people listened to what Bruce said. And uh, one thing I remember about the song, though, the thing that got the loudest cheer was in the New York Island part (laughs) of it. And every night, and you can probably hear it on the Nugs releases, too. The crowd just went nuts. But, uh, no, they they listened to him. I listened to him. And I I remember, as I, I was 20 years old at the time, thinking, like, okay, what is he trying to teach me? What don't I know that he's trying to get over to me? Hey, well, and
1: it's interesting because he was having an awakening himself. And of course, this would culminate later in the tour with the Vietnam veteran show, which we've already talked about. And I, I think that Bruce himself, he, he felt like internally, like he needed to say something that perhaps was a little bit more important. We'll say we'll use important in air quotes than he had been doing just playing rock and roll the previous number of years. Is it, Would you say that's fair?
0: Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think he said he had read a book that John Landau had given him called The History of the United States. I don't know if he mentioned it at these shows. I think he may have one night. And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was a little bit about Bruce, like, you know, take a look around you and uh,
2: know what's going on and uh, be aware of what's going on. But it's going back and listening to those introductions. Now, he seemed pretty, pretty vague about things he wasn't talking about specific issues he was just talking about making sure that people can establish themselves and they're not forced out of their community unlike obviously later on the talk we talk about the vets being the vets the vietnam vets being a very specific issue as well as the food banks basically throughout the rest of his career
0: oh yeah absolutely that's what i was saying it was the first time he really that I remember that he brought, you know, started talking about something like that. So maybe he was still getting his feet wet too, about what he really wanted to say and come across. And also you asked, you know, how the crowd reacted that, you know, the crowd shut up and listened to
2: him and Mm -hmm. wanted to hear what he had to say about these things. Right. So different than at the garden shows in 2016, when as soon as independence day started, you could hear this den of, of conversation going, going across the entire entire arena. And that was, very disappointing so i always like to wonder wonder what it was like at the time
1: oh we know modern day audiences have shorter attention spans and certainly more distractions with stuff like cell phones
2: yeah that's so true but uh getting back to the shows stan what do you remember about the band's performances that week i just remember
0: they were really tight they were playing them real well I know at the garden for that Thanksgiving show, I didn't have great seats. I was far away. So, you know, it's tough at the garden, especially if you're on the other side of the arena and up in the the old greens, green seats, as they've <laughs> said. And uh, and here at Nassau, I was a bit closer. So you just you just got this feeling that, um, you know, I, I could see Bruce, you know, as always, though, but he just really had the command over the band, over the audience and they were playing well. They were really tight. Uh, you can, you know, you hear it on the Nugs releases too. Would you say that in the entire time and the many times you've seen
1: Bruce? is this stand really the peak? I mean, obviously he's played amazing shows in the 40 years since not to take anything away from those shows, but the river tour is probably the peak of his career. And you one list, at least listening to the new year's Eve show, one could make the argument that that was the, the ultimate peak that he ever hit as a live performer. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I I can agree with that. Although for me, and I know many wouldn't, wouldn't agree with me on this. I always felt the peak was, uh, the 10-night stand at, at the Meadowlands in August of 1984. I, I just felt, you know, he was on top of the world with Born in the USA and, and the crowd was with him. But there's no arguing about how he was at the peak here, too, what you could say. They, like I said, they, they were just on top of the world and they, they were tight. They were playing well. And uh, it was like, you know, you knew they were just headed to where 1984
2: was going to be, that they were going to be the biggest thing in the world. Are, are there any specific songs or performances from, from these nights that you still think back and are like, holy yeah. crap, that was amazing? Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a story about the second show, December 29th.
0: Uh, I, I, again, that was the night of Billy Smith. We were about three rows behind the stage, behind Clarence. And we snuck a tape recorder in. And uh, recorded it, yeah, at the time. We were watching security where they were checking people. So Billy stuck the tape recorder down in his crotch and made it in. And we recorded it. I had a great, great recording for a long time of it. Anyway, he opened that night with Night. And that was pretty rare at the time. He hadn't played it. uh, It was a tour premiere. And on the the tape, you can hear Billy and I going, Night! Night! Oh, my God! (laughs) (laughs) We were so excited. And, you know, the thing is, again, pre-internet days, we didn't really realize how rare it was. But we were just so excited to hear it. And uh, the other thing that night, he played Incident into Rosalita, uh, yeah. which was the last time he did that until, uh, what, Des Moines, Iowa, how, in 2009, nine, two thousand. Yeah, it, well, it was the last performance
1: of Incident at all until the the famous Spectrum, well, not the Spectrum, the, uh, <laughs> the Philly performance at the First I, Union Center, whatever they call that place. It's gone through a number of names <laughs> on September 25th, 1999, also an archive release. And, of course, that version of Incident has been out for a long time because they used it for the live 75, 85 B-side, although there was kind of bastardized because they took it out and made it feel like a club. And, of course, on the archive release, it's restored in its full glory. <laughs> and, uh, but just what a remarkable performance to listen to. I, that is uh, the 1229 show, And I, and I've always said this, and I think we talked about it when it came out on the show – That is, in my opinion, now, of course, I wasn't there. I was 10 minutes away, unfortunately, but 10 minutes, as I said in the last episode, 10 minutes away, but about 10,000 miles. Uh, But what a performance on 1229, almost to the equal, if not the equal, of 1231 listening to it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think even now we know in multiple nightstands, usually the opening night is not usually the best show, not that there's anything wrong with it. But it's not the show that you look back on at, you know, three, four nights at the same place and go, oh, that was that was the best one of the four. And, uh, you know, the first one in Nassau, December 28th, I think they were just getting their feet wet a little bit. And then, yeah, the 29th was just boom. And that really set up for
2: uh, New Year's Eve. Well, were you expecting Rosie out of Incident on that night? Yes. Yes, (laughs) Yes, we were. We were. so you, and, you, were, you were ready for that, for the yeah. for the powerful guitar to kick in. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. We would have been very, very disappointed if he didn't. But also, it was at the end of the show, too. So you, you knew he always closed the shows with Rosalita before the encore. So
2: you figured that was coming. Okay. Now, another three-song combination I want to ask about, uh, at least from the first two shows, was the stolen car wreck on the highway point blank. Yeah. Uh, uh, trio well, being it it's different well, obviously now listening to it 40 years later but how was it at the time do you have any recollections of of your of your reactions or the fan reactions around you yeah you know that came um i'm just looking at Bruce face
0: here and that came after like for you which is you know a bit of a rocking song and then he went into the, the those three songs And uh, that was, you know, powerful is the way to describe it. I remember in Wreck on the Highway, they had like a eerie light showing like on the stage, uh, uh, like a green spotlight or something, where it was almost like Bruce was staring into it, like he was looking at the wreck on the highway. And I I, I remember that being real powerful. And I believe they did that every night um, when he played that song. And, you know, it's just something fitting, like, you know, he was looking at the wreck on the highway. And then, of course, Point Blank, oh, he's always always great. Still great to this day. But, yeah, 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 looking back, that was quite the triple header. I love Stolen Car. And um, I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but he didn't play that New Year's Eve. But we got it on the uh, 29th.
2: And the 28th. And the 28th, Yes. Right. Well, the, of course, the great thing about Bruce sets is the way he he builds the tension and then he sets the release. And obviously there's no no greater tension than stolen car wreck on the highway point blank. And then you have the release in ties of Bind, Ramrod. You can look. Yeah. And I mean, that that was just part of, of his legend. I remember. Was it uh, what's his name? Was it Patrick Humphries or Chris Hunt in their book, Blinded by the Light, talked about how he just he. Takes you up and he brings you down and he takes you back up, even higher than you were before. And that just, of course, built built the legend. Mm. Doesn't he still do that? In he, does. Yeah, he, of totally he does. Totally does. Of course he still yeah. does. But yeah. that's what you know that his ability to do that really, I mean, that built the legend in 1980.
1: Pure genius, okay. though. The Flynn is right. I mean, to follow stolen car wreck on the highway, point blank, with the ties to bind is just, it, it's it's just stunning. And and Flynn is right. I mean, that's, that's one of the genius things that he's done and why his live performances are so compelling because he, he's taking you through these various feelings. And, uh, you know, again, I, I think probably the River Tour, the original River Tour, I should say, now <laughs> that there's been a second one, is probably the high point on that. because And he
0: had such a diverse group of material in 1980-81. You know, there was something, I was thinking how he had done most of the songs from The River, and I was looking back at the set list, and I'm like, no, he did quite a few of them, but he, he didn't do a lot of them either. And uh, yeah, as you said, we're very diverse. A lot of Darkness songs and uh, some early songs really mixed it up, mixed up the yeah. set list.
2: Yeah, the well, Sandy and, I, and For You. Yeah, that's he, he wasn't doing songs from the first two albums, like, well, I guess, for, except for Spirit and Rosie, too mm-hmm. much at that point. Right, right and I guess Sandy was kind of a it was kind of a regular at that point though. Yeah, yeah. So I, I got to go back
1: and yet. I got to go back and look at the uh, four garden sets which I haven't really refreshed my memory on in a while. Stan, was were these sets a lot different than what you had seen at the garden on Thanksgiving night?
0: Um you know I'm going to have to look on that. I have Bruce face up as we're talking. Uh, Well, he opened with Born to Run. (laughs) Right, he did not do that at the Coliseum. Yeah, right, which was interesting. And just a quick look. Uh, You know, I see Jackson Cage was played the night I was there. Um, But, yeah, some of it was still the same. Some of it was still the same. Um, He did the Stolen Car Wreck on the Highway Point Blank Trio into Ties That Bind, Ramrod, and backstreets. So, yeah, a, a little bit of the same arc, but throwing some different songs in here and there.
2: Yeah, looking back on it, it, it's interesting that Jackson Cage is not making a single appearance over these three nights.
0: No, not
2: at all. And that was pretty much regular up to, up, to, yeah. up through the garden there. Yeah. Well, he
0: was
1: bringing in some new stuff uh, right, right around that time. Who'll Stop the Rain had come into the set. We mentioned This Land, the Land. I think also Who'll Stop the Rain aims at what we were talking about this political awakening. I mean, it's a certainly a song that has a political theme to it. And of course it became a very key moment at opening the vet show the following August.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because we did get to hear that uh, all three nights. And I'm not quite sure how much Bruce had been playing that before the three Nassau shows. I see it was on a tour debut, but um, it was premiered uh, two shows earlier at the garden, twelve eighteen. Okay. Yeah. All right. So yeah. So he put that in the set list. So that was a bit different than, like I said, I only saw one of the garden shows, but to have that. So here you had that, and you also had
2: "This Land Is Your Land" in it too. And he actually played those two back to back on on New Year's Eve, making for a heck of a statement. Yes, he did. <laughs> he was well, into the Promised Land.
1: Yes, <laughs> that's what I was going to point out. Let's not forget that it was then led into the Promised <laughs> Land, which. As we know with that song and where it's placed, that's never an accident. And who will stop the rain? This land is your land, the promised land. That's a trifecta for you.
2: Very, very true.
1: So, Stan, moving to New Year's Eve, this was obviously a very big night. Everyone knew it was going to be a big night. You you look at the shows that are famous in his career. you got the bottom line, of course. You've got the Agora. You've got Winterland. You've got the second Passaic, (laughs) the second Hammersmith show. (laughs) And then you've got New Year's Eve. That's Those are probably the biggest shows of his career that we just named right there. How did you feel in the building that night as the show was unfolding and, and really as midnight was approaching, pretty crazy stuff was going on?
0: It was electric. It was magical. I'll tell you the truth. Uh, one thing I remember uh, is when right after midnight, I, I don't know. For some reason, I thought he was going to go to 2 a.m. or something like that. Like was <laughs> so New Year's Eve, he was just going to keep going. That we were going to get one of those four and a half, five-hour shows that everyone he says works. talks about but never really. Dan, he, <laughs> he played 38 songs. He did. He did. But I remember one say after New Year's. Uh, after playing Online Lang Syne, he went right into Rosalita. And I always knew that was the final song of the main set. And me being 20 years old and kind of naive, I was like, oh, okay. The encore is going to start soon. I don't know. Even though, like you said, it was 38 songs and quite quite long. I thought we were still going to get another two hours or so. Well, this Just was the
1: deep. longest show for years and years and yeah. years until he went crazy <laughs> and, <laughs> and started doing the four-hour shows in 2016, though. No. Yeah. 2012. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're correct, 2012, and I should know that because the second Paris show was so long, and then he did break the four-hour mark in Helsinki. But that was one show, and then in 2016, we had that run of shows where he played basically four hours a night, which was pretty crazy.
2: That was very crazy. and But, yeah, he was, I guess even with the breaks, New Year's Eve was, I mean, it must have been over over four hours with the break, no, Stan?
0: Yeah, I would think so, and um, close to it. Oh, with the with the break, including the break, absolutely. And I know we got out of there; it was probably one fifteen or so. So it was still it was still pretty <laughs> pretty long thirty eight songs. Well, the archive clocks in at three hours and forty three minutes.
2: Wow, but that doesn't that does not include the the intermission break, which was, was which was at least fifteen minutes.
1: Yes, right. oh, I'm sure it probably right. ran a little bit longer. Yeah, right.
2: probably closer to thirty. Yeah, yeah. You but, know
0: the big the big thing. That night too, and you hear this on the uh, Nugs release, is the big concern was fireworks. We, we we know what happened to Bruce at the Richfield Coliseum on New Year's Eve, nineteen seventy eight, and he there was this big concern that you don't see this anymore now, but there was this big concern that people were going to throw fireworks at. Uh, right at midnight. And Bruce makes an announcement about 20 minutes before midnight to please not do it. And I do remember when it hit midnight, all the house lights went on, just like it does during Born to Run Now. And I, I think it was not only celebrate uh, New Year's, but it was also like, if anyone's throwing fireworks, we're going to see who you are.
2: <laughs> uh, that's that's cool. I, did, I had not heard that story before.
0: Mm. Now, there was a three song
1: combination in this show as well. Songs that were, would be played a few more times i think on the river tour but then not for a long time after that tell us what you remember of rendezvous fade away the price you pay all in a row
0: that that was pretty wild you know i uh, i i always liked rendezvous so was always glad to hear that because you know i believe uh, he was doing that as early as 1976 and i guess through the magic of bootlegging i was aware of it <laughs> and um Fade Away, you know. I, I don't think it was out at the time, but that was the second single, which I don't know if it was released at this time. Which I always thought was an interesting choice after Hungry Heart,
2: and it, um, it, it, it did go to top twenty.
0: It did,
1: yeah. But it it did likely kill the momentum of the record. (laughs) I mean, uh, clearly there were other songs on there. Cadillac Ranch comes to mind. Uh, Sherry Darling, uh, Out in the Street. I mean, (laughs) uh, a very odd choice for a second single, I would say. And I like the song, but just not that radio friendly.
0: Fade Away is one of those songs that I have grown to appreciate more over the years. I don't think I really cared for it at the time. Was like you know, as a twenty-year-old going, "Oh, this is a boring song," <laughs> <laughs> but now, but "Price You Pay" I always loved. I, I always that was always special. There was just something special about that, and it still is to this day. It was so rare that he, he didn't play it for a long time. But uh, yeah, that was, that was quite the free song. And then what, that went into "Wreck on the Highway" too yeah. that night. Even
1: even back then, did, he didn't play the "Price You Pay" that regularly on the River Tour, did he?
2: Uh, Flynn, you might
0: know better than me. I don't believe
2: so. It was a semi-regular, like, through the spring before he went to Europe. I mean, it wasn't an every-nighter, but it wasn't, you know, once every ten shows either.
1: Now, and it is is interesting, because Bruce Bass says that the Rendezvous was the last performance of the song until
2: 1999. Wow. Well, something about it being included on tracks. And then that's that's the version that is actually on tracks that got it back onto his radar. Hmm. That makes total sense. And when do you want to talk about the real rare
0: one we got that night?
2: Well, what uh, did, so what did you know about that one held up without a gun?
0: I knew it because it was the flip of um, Hungry Heart, the 45. And um, just knew it was, well, how long is it? A minute and 30? A minute and
2: 40? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. It's very so, brief.
0: You know, so I was kind of, you know... I, I I, I remember this and listening to again to the uh, audio of the show I, I remember after you can look but you' better not touch Bruce was a little confused about how much time he had to midnight and uh, I, you can hear it he goes how much we got eight minutes, six minutes, five minutes. So it was like all right, do, I better not do a long song so he was like uh, he pulled it what do you say I'm pulling him really pulling him out of the pit right now. <laughs> <laughs> and we got held up without a gun which i was aware of i don't know how many in the crowd did but i thought that was real cool and um i i looked in i mean that's only been played five times total that was the first time obviously
2: and that was and, that was the debut and then it wasn't played at all and for right. until 2008 so right, an toward... open. and i was going to ask you flynn and how do you know that's over
0: 27 years has there been another song with that long of a break <laughs> <in> well <between? laughs> you know
1: that's always, and we we've talked about this a lot. Uh, there were so many songs that took long breaks. That may be the longest one. We'd have to go back and check. Uh, how long was the was the kiddies back? No, that would have been uh, seventy have been eight to uh, to two thousand. So that's only twenty two years. Only.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. This one was held up without a gun. When this was cheating, I looked it up on Bruce Base. Was after this New Year's Eve show was not played again until June twenty first, two
2: thousand eight, in uh, Hamburg, of all yeah, places, over in Germany. Well, yeah. and what? And so you said that you knew it, but what kind of reaction did did it have with the rest of the crowd?
0: You know, at the time, you know, it was five minutes to midnight, so I think the crowd was all hyped up anyway, getting ready for New Year's Eve, and uh, so they they were excited. They may not have known it, but they were still well into it. You know, and, you know, you know um, as um, you brought up earlier about like a song Independence Day and there's a lot of talking now, you know, Bruce, we were all younger then. So these we were kids, <laughs> you know, 20s, <laughs> 20, 25, you know, maybe the oldest person at the show was 30 or something like that. <laughs> That's so you funny know. to think so, about. So everybody was so into the music then, you know, you didn't have cell phones, you weren't chatting away, you were, you were totally into the show, oh, and uh, no, they were well into it, and I think I was with some Bruce uh, fans, and they were like, they, they knew it too, so, and, you know, I don't even know if we knew at the time, he had never played it before, but uh, it was pretty special, we were like, alright, <laughs> he's trying to stall a bit, because he doesn't know what time it is to midnight, and then uh, <laughs> then we got in the midnight hour.
2: And then, and then, obviously, into all Lang Syne for, the, for New Year's. Mm. Can you, now, one of the few things that my, my wife remembers from that show, and she was there, uh, is, is, was Bruce, and it was all the girlfriends and, and wives being on stage for, at, at midnight. What, can you,
0: what are your memories from that? I remember that. I remember coming out. I didn't know who Joyce Heiser was at the time, but she was one of the people who came out. I think there's video. Really? Of it too, Not great video, but there is video and you can see it. They were throwing confetti up and everything, but I do remember that that all the wives and girlfriends did come out and uh, gave a kiss and hug to the people on stage and uh, then they went and ran into it. So, you know, it was special for everyone.
2: So this this show did have a couple of extra songs in the encores, Twist and Shout and Raise Your Hand, that he really, he didn't do I guess he did Twist and Shout quite a bit on the river but Raise Your Hand, not not so much. So when you walked out at 1.15, as you yeah, said, did you? were you saying to yourself, wow, we just saw one for the ages? Or were you just like, that was a great show?
0: No, you saw one for the ages, absolutely. Okay. Right. Uh, I've always wondered about that. No, no, you, you knew it was special. Like I said earlier, there was the greedy me who figured he might go to 2 a.m. But looking out, I, I, I didn't even realize it was 38 songs at the time. And uh, But walking out, you knew, like, that's one I'm going to be talking about for years. And 40 years later, it's still one that, um,
2: you know... (laughs) Well, we're talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) it
0: One of the more famous shows that he's played, that's for sure.
2: Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Um, Has he ever done more than 38 songs in a show? We'd have to go back and calculate.
1: I don't think so, because even the long shows in 2012 and 2016... Those shows got to be that length because certain songs were very elongated, stuff like that. So, you know, yeah, I don't I mean, think yeah. he, here you had a lot of short songs in the show. I don't think he's ever hit thirty-eight songs, but we'll have to go back and take a look at that.
2: Yeah, I think I think Hal's right. I think a lot of the the four hours. Was kind of padded by you know by by false endings and <laughs> yes. crowd sing-alongs, um, you know. I mean, I, I guess he did "Twist and Shout" at on New Year's Eve, but you know, a ten-minute version of "Twist and Shout" in two thousand twelve and sixteen was well. I guess not sixteen, but twelve was definitely not unheard of.
0: Right.
1: So, Stan, I'm just curious. With obviously, you knew "Walking Out." You just said it was it was a very special night. You've seen so many shows over the years. Where does this one rank overall?
0: As you look back, uh, it's, it's top five. Don't don't ask me what my top five is right now because I, I would I'd have to look at it again. But oh, it's definitely up there. It's definitely was special. And yet, you know, the thing too, he's never played another New Year's Eve show.
2: No, yeah, he hasn't. That was it. after he played one in seventy five and seventy eight. Seventy eight.
0: And and you know what else I found interesting is he has never played in between with the East Street Banner or, or any other tours. Um, I think after December 17th or 18th and um, till the beginning of the new year. So this was the last time he ever definitely played between Christmas and New Year's. He did shows.
1: Yeah. I never knew if it was legend or what, because of course by 1984, I was old enough to go to the shows and I lived 10 minutes from the Coliseum. And there was all this talk in the fall of 84 that they were going to do New Year's Eve shows. Again at the Coliseum. And of course, it never came to fruition. It was probably just random rumor that we heard. As <laughs> I was, I was, uh, at that right. point, I was 15, 16 years old, depending on what point we're talking about in 84. So I don't know how much truth there was to it, but everyone was so hopeful he was going to do it again. It didn't happen in 84. And of course, as you just pointed out, it has never happened again. And unfortunately, I guess uh, my guess is it's probably that's the
0: end of it. This was the last New Year's Eve show. Yeah, I remember, I think it was on the reunion tour in 1999, there was an article in the paper about the uh, Meadowlands Arena. And uh, they were quoted saying they weren't because, you know, that was the new millennium and everything. And they were asking if they were going to have a New Year's Eve show, and they said we have the date open, but only for one band. And <laughs> as, we, as far as we know right now, they're not interested in doing it. So the, I, I guess the Meadowlands was hoping Bruce would do a show nineteen
2: New Year's Eve nineteen ninety nine, but that never materialized. Well, and also the thing about National Coliseum is, especially in eighty four, is that he was the biggest biggest rock act in the planet on the planet at that point, and that, and the National Coliseum was actually. Relatively small for an arena, right? Well, at the time it, it held or No,
1: no, no. At the time it held about 16,000
2: Oh really? I just yeah. thought it was like a lot when, smaller. Okay.
1: No, no, no. When the Islanders were when, it, when the when the when the Islanders played there, and all the major acts played there, mm-hmm. I saw a, a U two played there on the Joshua Tree tour for two shows when they were the biggest band on the planet at that point. They actually opened the fall leg at the Coliseum. So yeah, no, it, it, they downsized it after the Coliseum closed down and the Islanders left to go to Barclays. But when the Islanders were playing there, it was it was a sixteen thousand seat. Uh, Arena
2: Okay right. My bad My apologies But that's still smaller Than than the garden Oh yeah And most other arenas Right? Yes Yeah Mm
1: -hmm. It was a great place To see a show I mean obviously For (laughs) me It was where I grew up So Very fond memories And I've only seen Bruce there The one time That I was there On the Magic Tour With you guys and uh, I to, to this day, I wish I had been at these shows in 1980. But, you know, understandably, my parents were not letting 12 year old Hal go to rock concerts <laughs> on New Year's Eve. And I don't think I would have gotten tickets even if they had
0: said, OK, you can go. Well, well, you, you, well you, you, you know, the was, thing, Hal, what you meant to how I felt after the New Year's Eve show is not only the New Year's Eve show, but it was like. In the span of four days, I was thinking, I just saw three real great Bruce Springsteen shows. That was something to see. You know, I think I I had seen him a few times already, but never three times in four nights. So that was like Bruce Overload. And it was like, here I go into 1981. Yeah. (laughs) I think back
1: on it sometimes because I was aware of these shows. I did know the music. I had the river by that point. Of course, on the island, it was a big deal that he was playing these shows if i if i had actually gotten the chance to go if i would have understood what i was seeing i i imagine i would have been blown away but you think of yourself at that age seeing and experiencing something like that it it's 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 hard to it's hard to figure but you know it wasn't meant to be then fortunately a couple of years later it was meant to be and and
0: here we are yeah i'm glad they had the recording truck there though to get these shows out because you know, as you said, not only New Year's Eve, the 29th is a pretty damn good show too. Well, so, all all three shows yeah. that
2: have, have yeah. circulated as soundboards going right. back to almost back to the time, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is I, true. I mean, I think I heard some conspiracy theories that they, it was leaked to to a DJ in England just to to uh, get some get some hype going for the for the shows in Europe in in the summer of eighty one. Hmm. I don't know how true that is, but it's, you know, it's a theory. Well, it, and it just goes to show
1: you, because even after the River Tour, they still didn't release a live album. They were sitting on these shows, and someone said, well, it was Bruce. We know not someone. It was Bruce said, you know what? I don't want to release a live album. It's it's really remarkable that you if, if you think about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah and, you know, the other thing, New Year's Eve, old Lang signed. That's a rocking version. You listen yeah. to that. I mean, Clarence's sax and Danny's organ, I mean, they they're they're, they're rocking on that. That's yeah, a great they, version.
2: Yeah, they had some fun with that one. They yeah, they yeah. they made it a rock song, as you said.
0: Well, yeah. you really have to
1: ask, did any band at any time really ever play any better than they were playing in this stretch of shows late December 1980?
0: That's no, that's think, you know, it's I think they were feeling the confidence too that uh, you know this, they're, they're about ready to take off. And, uh, you know, I, I, I I wrote down this note from listening to the show again, Bruce said, I ain't no bum. Me and you are going to make it in 1981. And And they sure did. And they took off. Absolutely.
1: Now, before we wrap up, did you see shows in the summer of
0: 81 as well? I saw open the second night at the Meadowlands, uh, which would have been what July 3rd, 1981, Mm -hmm. When the arena just opened up and tell you the truth. I thought Bruce was very tight then. I I don't know what it just, I I remember he just didn't talk to the crowd that much. And I know some of the other shows of the six were better, but yeah, I I didn't walk away that night feeling like, Oh, that I mean, every Bruce show is a great show, but I didn't walk away that night thinking that that night was anywhere near what I saw uh, here at the Nassau Coliseum over the three nights.
2: Okay. That makes sense. Yeah.
1: Well, it's interesting. He'd been through so much by then because he had had the exhaustion. He went to Europe, which was really the first time they experienced a huge European tour. There were only a few dates there in 75. And then he came back and and he opened the Meadowlands. And the shows, just listening to it, of course, I wasn't there, but listening to it, the shows do feel very different than what he played here in late
0: 1980. Yeah, you know, he he was much looser at the end of 1980. And yeah, yeah that's what I remember at the Meadowlands. he I, like I said it was only at one show but he just seemed real tight like not not you know as having as
2: much fun as he did during uh the end of 1980 well there's definitely a debate about which which stretch of shows were, were better whether it was the free the freewheeling marathons of of the fall and winter of 1980 or the more tight succinct you know, almost political shows that he did in the summer of 81. Right, right.
1: Well, it goes back to that awakening I was talking about that he was having that really started right
2: around this time. Right, but at the same time, you can have an awakening and still have a freewheeling show, right?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I guess so. You are right. The show did become a lot more compact, in 1981, and also I think And there's been a lot of discussion about this We probably should take an even closer look at it At some point, in the summer of 81 A lot of the songs were played at slower tempos Right?
2: Yes, yes, uh, especially like The Hungry Hearts and like Ranches of the world
1: Yeah, so it, just, it really, and I don't know that we'll ever Get the answer to why that happened It it, it does seem unusual within the Same tour for a band to, to really Change the tempos of some of the songs
2: Especially since those those shows ended up being a little bit shorter than the, when when the when the songs were faster paced.
1: Oh, that is, yeah, that's a good point. So, Stan,
0: anything else you want to say about these shows before we wrap up? No, just uh, quite the memories. Thanks for bringing them back. You know, after forty years, you forget some things. So, uh, <laughs> but looking back, you know, I, I it just again you know, the, the funny thing is I, I have no idea how i got ticket I, I remember like i said the New Year's eve show i got the tickets in the mail order I still have no idea i got the tickets to the 28th or the 29th so but somehow i was there all three nights and uh they, they were magical nights i always look back and um proud that i was be uh, that i was there and uh you know I, i'm not one to brag as uh some but i just you know it's always proud to say i was at that New year's eve show in 1980 as it was a legendary
2: one yes it was yeah that's certainly i think that that gives you some bragging rights there oh yeah (laughs) my my wife certainly does not hesitate to brag about that whenever it comes up
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was it it just stuns me 40 years like i think 40 years from 1980
3: was 1940 yeah
0: it's it's it's, it just blows your mind i mean it, yeah, it's true. It, it, it
1: really it, it's hard to comprehend. It, it'd really be interesting to know how Bruce feels now, uh, at, 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 now that he's 71 and to think back and look at the band. Well, they I don't think they have much film of the band at this point, but to listen to the band and these multi tracks, I wonder what he thinks when he hears it, because he's got to be like, man, we were really fucking good. <laughs>
2: They he were, should he should think that anyway, but I think that we got all the video or all the film they have in the River Box set. Oh, you're right. Yeah. yeah.
1: So well, Stan, thank you so much for sharing your memories of these shows with us and with our audience.
2: Yes, it's thank just you.
1: Crazy, as we said, the 40 years, and, and I'm certainly going to pull out these shows and listen to them on the anniversary next week.
0: Ditto. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh wonderful memories and I, I did listen to the new year's eve show matter of fact it was on e street radio today <laughs> and i was listening to it and i think i'm going to pull out the december 29th show in a few days again too and take a listen to that and thank that you for awesome. having me on i, I enjoy your podcast i listen to everyone and uh they're great you two you two really know your stuff so it's oh, a th- thank
1: process. you very much stan that means uh, a lot and hopefully yes we'll does. be able to see you out on the road sometime soon
0: all right uh, thank, thank you thank you
1: so that was Stan Goldstein. And again, we thank him for joining us to give us a little bit more flavor about these shows, specifically the middle one, 1229. We have another guest joining us now, Flynn.
2: And now we're going to talk with uh, another good friend of ours, uh, Lowell Kern. We've, we've known him going back to, the, back to the 90s. And he's seen a lot of shows in the New York area. So welcome, Lowell, to the, to the podcast. Happy to be here. And so you were at the middle show, the December 29th show.
3: Right. There there were the three shows at NASA. Um, At that point in time, I was getting my tickets through my dad, quite frankly. Um, (laughs) He he was a dentist. He had a lot of CBS execs who were patients. And after seeing one of the garden shows over Thanksgiving weekend, like I got to go to NASA. And I asked and they said, yeah, but you can't get New Year's Eve. So I settled (laughs) for the 29th.
2: Well, that's that's not a bad that's not a wasn't a bad show to settle for, at least especially in retrospect.
1: Definitely not. Listening to the archive release, as we were saying with Stan, I mean, it's almost if it's not the equal of 1231, it's right
3: up there. It was a great, great show. I mean, but I was still a relative newbie at the time, and I didn't realize you didn't get incident into Rosie all the time. (laughs) You know, I had seen my the, the show I saw Thanksgiving weekend at the Garden was my first full length Bruce show. The first time I saw him was no nukes, but that was my first full length Bruce show. So the 1229 show was only my second full length show. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't really appreciate then what I do now looking back at that show. Good. I can imagine.
2: In, in addition to incident or, or what other what, what other aspects did you do you feel like you appreciate more now than then?
3: I just just, you know, the whole it was different pre-born in the USA. The, the vibe was different. It was I mean, I know a lot of the world thinks we're a cult. But <laughs> well, let's it, not use that word. <laughs> it, it was really cult like back then, especially in the New York area. Because it was our thing. I mean, I was in high school at the time, and the Who had toured, and then there was the, you know, the Zeppelin tour that was canceled, and there was all of that buzz about those kind of shows. But Bruce was something else.
2: Can you describe the vibe at all for for those of us who were not there pre Born in the USA?
3: It, it, it was. And the first couple of shows, I mean, you've got to tie the seven New York area shows together. Right. right. um, Because it was, the first two were obviously Thanksgiving weekend. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people came, you know, it was high school. People came into school on Monday. Everyone was wearing the (laughs) a baseball jersey that I will admit I lived in um, until it was threadbare.
0: Well, (laughs)
1: do you still have it?
3: I still have it, but it's... uh, not in good shape. I had to buy a second one after off of eBay just to make my quilt. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We have a quilt too. Yeah. Um, no so, quilt here. You know, there was when you got into school on Monday, it was like, cause you didn't know everyone who was there. It was a holiday weekend. You didn't necessarily know who was going, um, the way I would now know, you know, 150 people who are all going to be at the show. So you kind of looked at everyone. and It's like, oh, my God, that was amazing. You know, and there was just kind of this. It was kind of like an inside joke in a little bit of a way that, you know, all right, I did ju- what I just saw. No one else will understand. So there was also I had a good friend who didn't see one of those shows, but he was going to one of the December. What was it? The 18th and 19th shows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, you know, there was a tinge of, you know, envy that you saw it already and I haven't seen it. And this was the guy who gave me my first couple of bootlegs. So I had one up on him. Um, And then you got to the shows over what was, you know, again, high school Christmas break at Nassau. It was all right. Well, what do you mean you're going again? (laughs) You know, and who said who said that to you? Other uh, other people, other friends, parents, parents. Parents? Yeah, that's what I thought. Well, my parents, absolutely. My father's like, why do you want to go again? I'm like, Dad, just trust me. It's like, okay, I'll ask. Um, Thank you to Bunny Fritis, wherever she is. Um, (laughs) It's, you know, the people who didn't get it are, why are you going again? And the people who got it are like, I can't believe you got tickets to go again.
1: That's one of the things we were talking about with Stan was that at this point, Bruce was, he hadn't broken out yet fully. He was big in the New York area. He was big in some other areas. But as you note, it was it was pre-born in the USA. And, and it, was, it was a different scene. Uh, probably some of our listeners who come along much after born in the USA don't understand at this point that Bruce was not really he was certainly not a superstar,
3: right? Not on the kind of level where he's, you know, inherited Dylan's role as voice of a generation. He was, he was a New York, New Jersey cult figure. Yeah, Boston, Philly, Phoenix, LA. Um, but it, it was, it was, it was I, I know you said not to use the word how, but we were our, you know, there were people in the know and then there were people who just didn't get it. You know, okay. high school, again, think back, you know, everyone's wearing whatever concert t-shirts they wore. You know, whatever they go to the show, they buy, you know, mostly, especially at the Garden, the bootleg shirts on the way back to the Long Island Railroad. Um, and that's how you know what everyone saw, because it's what shirt were they wearing the next day?
1: Yeah, that was what killed me, because I was in middle school at the time. And, you know, you saw all the older kids and they were all wearing these Springsteen shirts. And I knew the shows had taken place, as I, as I said earlier in the episode. And it was just a killer because... It was my awakening. I had just discovered Bruce earlier that year, or really the year before, and I knew the shows were happening, and they were ten minutes from my house. But you know, I just couldn't go. It was that was the reality. I was twelve years old, and my parents weren't so letting me go to any rock concerts, much less on New Year's Eve or anything like that. So it and just it, it was it was sort of like this unobtainable thing that you knew about, and you just I couldn't wait until I could obtain it. And obviously, that happened a few years later.
3: Yeah, and, and how they would have had to drive you to the Coliseum because there was no way to get there.
1: Yeah, that was a problem with Islander games
3: as well. Yep. I, I, it was funny because it was my birthday. You had to be 17 in Nassau County to get a driver's license. I realize most of the country doesn't know that. It's 16 most everywhere. You had to be 17. And I was two weeks shy of my 17th birthday. So I had to ask a friend who had her driver's license already just so I could get out there. To get to Nassau. Um, and it was, you know, the the garden was so much easier. Every you know, everyone went, you know, where I grew up on Long Island, it was 28 minutes to Penn Station on the railroad. So everyone would go to the shows at the garden. Nassau was more difficult. And the Nassau shows, like I started to say before, were over Christmas break. So again, you didn't know who was gonna be there if you were gonna run into anyone you know, but when people found out you were going again it was there was this kind of you know inside thing to it you know like oh you know you get it <laughs> which was really pretty cool which you didn't it it didn't feel the same way after the USA tour when so, the entire world got it so
1: tell us a little about the night like what do you remember when the band came out on stage and obviously this is one of their peaks, if not the ultimate peak of, of Bruce and the Eastry Band's performing career. What do you remember about the show and, and the energy that was in the building?
3: Oh, it was it was insane. I mean, you mentioned the Islander games. That was, you know, the Islander glory days, you know, the four cups. It was louder than winning a Stanley Cup. It was, it was the energy in the building was just off the charts in a way that I apologize for all the dings, um, that was off the charts in a way that you do, you know, you just, it never felt exactly the same again. Um, maybe when Steve came out on, you know, in the, the last show at the Meadowlands in 84, um, that was the the, the the noise, the energy, the vibe. Again, I was a newbie at the time. I had seen the Garden Show. I knew kind of what to expect. Um, this was, you know, way before the days of, you know, forget the Backstreets Hotline. It may have been, you know, before Backstreets. Um, no, I know they were out there in '78. Sorry, Charlie. Um,
2: now the first issue of Backstreets was October of '80.
3: Yeah. Was it really? <laughs> yeah. All right. So there was no backstreets hotline to call in and get set lists. So I knew what I had seen and I was and and the shows, the length of the shows, not time-wise, but the number of songs. You were talking, you know, high 20s, low 30s at that point in time. Um, which was unheard of, you know, it's still unheard of for anyone except Bruce Springsteen and the East Street band. But it, it, at that point in time, it, it the shows went on forever. I mean, I remember. It, I know we're supposed to be talking about Nassau, but like I said, I, I think of those those group of shows together. I remember the Garden Show. The friend I was with, we're like, "Are we going to get the neck, the you know the train back to 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 Great Neck, or you know, are we going to be sitting in Penn Station for two hours because this show's never going to end?" And. It kind of felt it felt that way at NASA, too. I mean, I don't remember how many songs they played that night, but my my memory of it is that the shows just went on forever in a way because I didn't know what was coming. It's like when you go to the first show of a tour and you don't know what's coming and you don't know how long he's going to play for. Um, You know, we we get the rehearsal information now, so it's not as total shock, but. You know, you had no idea what was coming next. At least I didn't. You know I I believe the count was thirty five. By the way, yeah. Okay. It, it it's on twelve twenty mind boggling. No
1: these these were just epic performances. Certainly the archive releases reveal that and just to have been in these buildings for the entire year of 1980 just anyone who was there was so fortunate and it but uh, obviously there's nothing we can do about age but it, it bums me out to know as i've said before that the, you know these shows were taking place so close to home and, and damn i missed it but it's great that 40 years later you we can relive it with you and with stan and and with the archives of
3: course yeah, no, it's you it, it always wanted to be somewhere else, you know. How you wanted to be at NASA, you know, how many of us wanted to be at the bottom line that were 11 years old at the time and weren't getting into the bottom line, even if we knew about the bottom line? That's, that's true. And yeah, this was, I, I, it, it, I remember, again, I don't remember the show as specifically as I could tell you about anything in the reunion era. But remember the vibe. I remember the feel. I remember when they did the mail order the next spring for the the opening of the Brendan Byrne Arena Um, and the, the insanity that went on around that. Because at that point, if you didn't know who the Bruce fans were, you knew by then because, you know, six months later. Um
2: Everyone wore their t-shirts every day for six months.
3: Exactly. <laughs> I mean, part of the reason that shirt is threadbare is because I'd wear it on Monday, you know, I'd wash it midweek and I'd wear it again on Friday. Um, and it, you know, everyone knew and that the, you know, the energy of going to the post office for that silly mail order was just, again, it was something that I'll always remember and, No matter how many shows I go to, how many, you know, outstanding, amazing performances we see, whether one off songs or, you know, amazing shows, you know, that come out of the middle of nowhere. There was an energy there. And maybe it's just because I was a newbie and maybe it's because I didn't really appreciate what I was getting. But it's part of what sucked me into all of this was, I mean, it rivaled, you know. To stay with the Nassau vibe, it rivaled winning a Stanley Cup.
1: Yeah, I well, uh, just four years in a row. That yeah. well, yes, four years in a row. <laughs> in we a won't row. talk about we won't talk about what's taken place since, but that was pretty damn awesome when we
3: were winning. But but that, it, it was like that every night. You'd walk into the building in that vibe, and I know some people still feel it now. Walking into a building, you know. I don't necessarily feel the same way walking into the building now that I did, Jesus, 40 years ago. Um,
2: <laughs> well, you also, you're also you also not 16.
3: Don't remind me.
1: <laughs> well, I, you know, it's funny because I do often feel the same when I walk into a building. Just the energy of being in the building. You know, it's hard for me to connect because obviously it has been so long. But I, I do feel like when we walk in these days and, and the show is about to start and the lights go down, I, I'm still electrified by it. Do, are you saying you're just not electrified to the same level that you were or you're a little bit more like, it doesn't mean as much to you today?
3: Oh no, it means just as much. But it, and I realize that most of the crowd is probably still feeling that way. But I mean, and I, I hate to sound like a jerk here, but I've done it so many times um, you know, I know when they climb, start climbing up to the rack, to the, to the lighting rig over the pit, it's eight o'clock and he's coming on in 20 minutes, which I didn't necessarily know when I was 16, you know, you, you get in now, you look at the stage and you count the mic stands. Okay. Patty's not here. Right. Well, you know, that is true. You know, you, you can do that kind of thing now because we have this kind of body of knowledge, I had no clue what I was walking into. I didn't know what he was going to open with most nights. Are you getting Born to Run? Are you getting Badlands? Are you you know? I, I guess it was Badlands most of the time. But, um,
1: well, twelve twenty nine opened with Night, which was yeah. I mean, but uh, yeah. uh, toward the they I, 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 I,
3: I don't remember exactly the, the show specifically, but you didn't know. You didn't know what was coming. It was that anything can happen vibe that. Still shows up from time to time, but it was every show it was every night. And again, maybe it's because I'm 40 years older and I've been doing this for too long, but it was the, the energy and that anything can happen vibe is what I remember most about those shows.
1: Mm. Well, that's very, very cool. And we thank you very much for coming on to talk about this and, and reminisce with us 40 years ago on these shows can I, can I ask you a more current question just while we have you? Sure, Hal, go ahead. What, what's your favorite song off Letter
3: to You? What day of the week is it? <laughs> <Same> <laughs> as any other album. Um, Priest is, is awesome, and I can listen to that over and over again, but that's partly because of knowing where it came from. I like those middle three that uh, as you know, we, people yeah. are, are poo-pooing that I really think are the heart of the show. I, I, I really think you know, a Thousand Guitars is really what it's all about. And I know the song was written pre-pandemic, but if you listen to it in knowing where we've been, it's almost a, a, a plea for us to get back together and go to a show again.
1: Yeah, it's a healing song.
3: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, I, and I love that about the record because I've always loved that about Bruce's writing. And then you had said
2: to me that Last Man Standing is about his first show.
3: Yeah, well, I, I think you've got that, that there's a little bit of an arc in there. Last Man Standing, because you're talking about, you know, George Thies and, you know, the, the Castiles. And then you get Power of Prayer, which, you know, is after some show in some club somewhere. And then you have get Thousand Guitars and it's the next show. So you've got his whole career right there in three <laughs> songs.
1: And then uh, that all culminates with "Ghosts," which is my favorite song off the record. I was switching from day to day, but now I can say it is solidly "Ghosts." I think.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean that that brings it all, you know, uh, uh, around again because it's you know, if if we're here and you're here, then they're here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It all it goes back to that again.
2: Well, that's and, like we 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 count the living as we count off time. Yep. I'll count off the missing as we count off time.
1: And hopefully we will all be there again soon. So
2: <laughs>
3: As soon as it's we can. <laughs> a, of a thousand guitars.
1: Uh, I, it's something I know we're dreaming of, and, and a lot of the people who are, who are listening are dreaming, and not just for Bruce. I mean, uh, all music in general. And hopefully, as I said, we'll, we'll all be back soon, and we'll all be in the same arena seeing Bruce Knee Street Band, and he'll count off and
2: away we this go. This will
1: all be forgotten.
2: And all this darkness passed. Yes. For for, for at least four hours.
3: <laughs> that's what he's there for.
2: Yep. That's, that's what that i tell you. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time.
3: Thanks for having me, guys. It's
2: been a you play. are welcome. And again, that was our
1: good buddy, Lowell Kern, joining us to talk about the Coliseum. That, w- that was a
2: lot of fun, Flynn. What did you think? Uh, yes, it was. It's always good to hear firsthand recollections of these classic shows that, as we mentioned before, uh, we were just too darn young to, to even imagine attending. Yes.
1: So a uh, fun night, and everyone should check out the archives. If they don't own them already, pick them up, and, and these are definitely shows you want to listen to. And let's honor that 40th anniversary when Bruce and e
2: Street Band were on the very, very top of their game. Uh, yes, and I'm sure E Street Radio will be playing them this week as well, so... Uh, if they don't have them, they can just turn on the uh, on Sirius if they have that. I think that's a safe bet.
1: <laughs> and with that, I think that brings our look at the Coliseum shows to an end. It also brings 2020 to an end. Thank God.
2: <laughs> yeah, let's 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 turn the page here.
1: <laughs> we want to wish everyone a very happy and healthy New Year. Better things ahead in 2021.
2: Yeah, and of course on the Bruce front, you know. Is it too early to start hoping for uh, tracks two at the end of the year?
1: <laughs> Probably, <laughs> Not that I'm, but I'm,
2: I'm obsessed or anything.
1: We're gonna we're gonna do that anyway. We're certainly gonna hope for that.
2: <laughs> okay, okay.
1: None but the brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. We're on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Google. We're on all of them pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to interact with us online, you can find us on Twitter at NBTB Podcast, and our website is nonebutthebravepodcast.com.
2: Yes, once again, I want to thank our guests, Stan Goldstein and Lowell Kern, and for Hal Schwartz, um, am Flynn McLean saying, We'll see you further on up the road.
1: Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Coming up on Five Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.